Hello, and welcome to Faculty Feed with me, Dr. Jerry Rabelais, Associate Vice President for Health Science Center Faculty Development at the University of Louisville. With me are my co-hosts, Dr. Stacy Sainer, Director of HSC Faculty Development, and Dr. Laura Weingartner, Director of Research for Faculty Health Professions Education. Once a week, we're going to come together to use this podcast to bring faculty development content to feed your hunger and satisfy your appetite so you can magnify your impact as an educator, clinician, researcher, and academic leader. Today, we want to answer the question, have you ever experienced failure as well as the shame and vulnerability that accompanies that experience? We're really fortunate today to have Dr. Natalie Henderson with us. So Natalie, why don't you introduce yourself to the group? So my name is Natalie Henderson. I am an MD. I work at the Children's Hospital here in Louisville at Norton Children's. I work in the PICU. So that, for my job, it encompasses the CICU and the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit. As a side job or as part of my job, I do medical education with residents, fellows, and medical students. I am now our Associate Fellowship Director for our Pediatric Critical Care Congratulations. Fellowship. Congratulations. Yeah. That was um, probably, I think, as of February of this year. So you take care of some of the sickest of the sick patients at the Children's Hospital in those ICU settings. That's correct. Um, anybody who is born and needs heart surgery, traumatic brain injury, asthma, all the way up to adults who need heart surgery who were born as babies with heart problems. So right. I've taken care of people my father's age, <laughs> and that is not necessarily what I did when I started pediatrics all these years ago. So Natalie, a few months ago, you shared a story about failure, and would you go ahead and share that story with us now? The story really focuses on when I was taking my critical care boards in the last six years. However, I think it begins a little bit before then, if I'm really honest about it, because I was an English major in college and was going to be a high school teacher and thought, well, I'm going to try something different. I also really liked school, and the thought of doing a real job was a little bit scary. And then I, apl- I went into physics. Well, I had made all A's my whole life and took a physics class. And the guy told me, you'll never be a doctor. You can't do physics. Uh-oh. And I was like, well, I'm going to show this guy. Exactly. <laughs> but then I couldn't get into U.S. medical school because I didn't have an, I had a perfect score on the writing portion of the MCAT and a not perfect score in physics because he wasn't wrong. It was a struggle. And so I went to Ross University, which is a Caribbean med school. So that was my first taste of, and it, maybe it's not a failure, but a different path to get to the same result. But I was fortunate enough to make a connection in my medical school like world where they wouldn't let me rotate at U of L or UK because I was not at an LCME school. So I had to, I could set up AHEC or rural rotations, but I had to do it all myself. My school didn't help. And so in rural Kentucky in Somerset, where my dad lives, some of the local docs were like, sure, we'll take a student. We've never had a student. And one of them was um, a neurosurgeon. And he had trained in Egypt. He was Egyptian. And so he was very open to students with different backgrounds. So I started working with him. And then in an off time between rotations, he was like, can I pay you to work for me to help see patients? And so I essentially was an intern for him. Wow. And then he wrote me a letter because he was a, a locum at L. So I had a L faculty letter and that helped me get in the door here. I get to the end of my critical care journey I accepted a faculty position here, very excited to do so, and accepted it at the time our department was really growing. And so we added four faculty members at that time, one from um, who trained at Cincinnati Children's, one from Vanderbilt, and one from Hopkins. Um, all female, great group of us. And so we all are preparing for these boards, and we all sit for our boards, and I didn't pass by one question. Oh, wow. And I'd never not, I'd like done poorly on med school tests, but never not passed an exam. Right. 
And I was on service the day that I got my results. Yeah, so that was rough. Um, My boss, Dr. Montgomery, who is a great female leader and a great example, when she reaches over to hug you, then the tears start, right? Yes. Because as critical care doctors, we're emotive, but maybe not physically emotive all the time. And so um, I went home that day. And of course, like my husband, I call him. He's not in town. He's doing something for work. And my car gets a flat tire on the way out of Of the parking garage. Right, because what else would happen? Exactly. Um, So we get through that, and I'm like, okay. I can do this, but it really hindered me in my practice. Like if I look back on this, I was never able to practice. And that is until now. Like, and so until I could pass that test, I can never see myself as, as complete of a physician as my colleagues, whether that's true or not is not the case because it's just the, the hierarchical nature of medicine and what we've put in place as a medical society. Fast forward two years, take the same test. I sit for that test. I'm like, I'm going to go to Lexington. I'm going to start from a, a fresh place. I'm going to take it at Prometric in Lexington. I get in there. I had like a whole plan. I like start writing. I look up. The test shuts down. Before I even get a question opened, the whole system oh, shut no. down. Yeah. So I had to wait an hour and a half for them to sit, seat every other student. Uh, they had to call the ABP to get permission to reload the exam. Uh, 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 so I sit for that test. I miss it by one question again. So my boss was like, you should reach out to the ABP and just see, even though they're not going to let you retake it now, because it's an every other year, $3,000 yes. exam, exactly. just see. And they wrote back, oh yeah, your first half of your exam was horrible compared to your second half. We can't give you the information. Good luck next time. So that's a, that's an unbelievable story just to get to the point where you're taking this test now for the second time. Right. So you had experienced failure in some respect early on, just this failure to get into a U.S. medical school, right? right? And yet you responded in a way that I think it's so critical for people to hear that when something happens, and inevitably something is going to happen that you'll fail at something, it's not the fact that it failed. It's the fact that you had to do something. It's your response to the failure. Or take an alternative route. Right. And your response to the failure was to sort of grab it, own it, and go. Well, well, you have to decide how bad you want it. Yeah. And is that something you really want? That's right. You know, everybody will say, you know, very cliche things like, well, one door opens and yeah. whatever those <laughs> yeah. things are. But you have to decide, like, do you want to break the door down? Right. Or do you, like, maybe it truly is a different path that you're supposed to be taking. What are the implications so the audience understands sure. what what does this mean? Oh. It's not just failing yeah. it twice and i got to spend $3,000. It's what does this mean to you, your job? That's a great what question. What are the implications? Well, at first, I really didn't know. And so when you, every institution is different in the way they write their privileges for hospital practice, how they write promotional uh, guidelines. And with our situation, it's a little bit different because we practice in a Norton healthcare facility. But at the time, I was a U of L employee. And so Norton privileging is completely different from, you know, the U of L side. And so it had previously been written, or it, I think it may still be, you have to pass your board exam within five years of matriculation from your fellowship. Well, this, the third attempt would have been in my fifth year. And so I knew that in theory I had that option from a, just a time standpoint. Um, the board of pediatrics gives you, I think, three attempts before you have to repeat a year of fellowship. That's a, that's a huge, huge... Well, that's a pay cut. That's a time you step back. And, I mean, no one wants to, like, you're training fellows. 
and you're doing everything to teach them, you can't pass a test. So now you're going to have to go back. Like, what was I going to gain by going back? Right. I understand why they do it. So, right. you know, I've worked in medicine. We, for anyone listening who works in medicine, you know, you, and I think in any world, you meet those people that you're like, how did they get, how did they get out of here? Uh, <laughs> right. You know, you're like, I'm a really good person and I work really hard yeah. and I can't pass this one test, but this person like is brilliant and can pass any test, but I don't really want them caring for my kid. Yeah. yeah. And so that was what I really struggled with more than anything else. Right. Um, and, you know, I think even my partners were like, this is weird, you know, and this structure of testing while established may not be the best measure of how we measure a competent physician. And I never saw myself as someone who was anxious. You know, people who talked about test anxiety, sure. that was never a journey. I, I never sat in an exam and like panicked or never finished. It was quite the opposite. The English major in me made me a little bit tricky because I read too fast. Right. Oh, yeah. Um, and I was very gifted at pulling things out that maybe I shouldn't have. Um, like, it's good at reading, you know, a Hemingway novel. Exactly. But maybe not at, as good at reading a question about respiratory physiology. And so that became one of the journeys of, okay, how do I study differently? And how do I take a test differently to succeed? Because the knowledge is there. It wasn't yes. a knowledge issue. It wasn't a patient care issue. I, I finally reached that point. Good. It it, however, it was how do I take this test and check this box to move forward? So the implications were severe. Potentially, oh, you would not be able to work and, and have the job you have now if you failed that third test. Correct. Without so, going back to, to school, to fellowship all over It would again. have to be a rewriting of a policy. Right. Finish the story. Tell us what happened. Um, as, so I found a new therapist. The oh, excellent. Okay. So I'm a huge advocate for therapy because we didn't just talk about the test. We talk about the how failing had affected my marriage, yes. how fa failing had affected my personal interactions, because it definitely um, put me in friendships and relationships and made choices that maybe I wouldn't have made if I was in a better headspace, you know, looking for outside validation because I couldn't succeed in this one area. Right. And so when I finally sat back and was like, okay, something's got to change. That was probably six months after failing the second test. I was like, I've got to do something different. So I found a new therapist. I love her. I still talk to her all the time. And we didn't talk about the test at first. We talked about, okay, how does everyone else evaluate you? And if you study data, and all the data points fall in one area, but this one is an outlier, which do you trust? Exactly. And that visualization has really changed the way I think about all feedback that I get and I give. Because if everyone is saying the same thing, but then there's one outlier, I should probably just not focus on that. But, you know, oftentimes we hear the negative and that's where we stay. Um, so I first was with her. I actually met with Stacy. Yes. We, we talked about different study strategies. Yep. And it's trickier in when you're a faculty member to implement a lot of the study strategies because you are parenting. Yeah. I was married and a full-time physician teaching. So when, I'm a when I was a med student, I mean... I look back and I tell, I look at my students and I'm like, I'm so jealous of so much. Like, you don't, but you don't see it in the time. No. You can always look back. But, you know, the time to sit with a whiteboard and write down the topics. But things I took from that and implemented were, okay, let's take one topic I'm really good at and one topic I'm not really good at. And we study them in the same day. Yes. And we go back and forth. Yes. And we make schedules and we have plans and we do it around the life I've created. Right. So how right. do I take this failure and I'm going to win? And so we made a schedule, and I say we because it involved my whole family. They had to forfeit things as well. Like mom's not going to go to 
I don't know, the jack-o'-lantern thing because mom has to study at this time. But it also scheduled in, okay, today I'm going to work out at this time and study at this time so that I was meeting all of my personal needs. So I think doing that helped. And then, so we also talked about, and I say we, me and my therapist, um, a different study strategy altogether. And I, you know, it speaks to failure as a whole, but like if one way didn't work, that doesn't mean it was wrong, but maybe we try a different way. And so this time we said, okay, we're going to go through and answer every question we know 100%. And we're going to take that test, one through 100. And if you don't know it, don't answer it. You don't get credit if you don't answer it, and you don't get credit if you get it wrong. So only answer the ones you know. And then you take the second test. The second test are the ones you probably know, but you're not real sure about, and you would have changed the answer on. So answer those questions. And then you take the third test. The questions you didn't know at all, but you're going to have to guess, and you're going to make an educated guess. And so we took three tests twice. We did it for the first 100, and we did it for the second 100. And I, I believe my score was about 40 points higher than the previous two. For the second time. That's great. And uh, ironically, when I, so I'm going to get the results of this test. I know when they're coming, like we all, like the palm boards and the critical care boards all come out in the same week and I get COVID. And so I'm isolated to my basement because I have a son with immunocompromised and a husband who works in politics. So he's, they're very careful about exposure. So I'm relegated to the basement. So I have Netflix and a Peloton bike, and that's what I did for a week. <laughs> and, I, of course, I'm waking up at 6 a.m. to check my email every day. So I don't even get to celebrate the fact that I passed because I'm stuck in my basement by myself. <laughs> that's, of course, how it would go. You had the courage, once this was all over, to write this story down so that the public could see it. Tell us what it took for you to make that decision to decide, I'm going to write this story out for people. Well, the first trigger that made me, my husband always said, there is a reason for this. Like he's not in medicine. And he was like, someday it's going to make a difference that you failed to somebody else. And I'm like, whatever. When you're in the middle of it, you (laughs) really can't, you you know that he's probably right, but it's hard to get there. I was invited to sit down. um, One of my colleagues, Dr. Barton, invited me to come talk to the Gold Humanism group at UofL. And so I met with some of those students and we were talking about like, I think vulnerability and just in general in medicine. And I had a student reach out to me after and she was like, why don't more attendings talk about their struggles in medicine? Yeah. She said, I don't know any of my faculty members that have ever failed a test. And I was like, well, that's wrong because they have, you just don't know it. I didn't know that colleagues I work with every day, some aren't board certified. And I don't, it doesn't change the fact or the way I look at them and they practice because they treat me kind. They take good care of their patients. And we know that, some 10, 15% of all test takers for medicine boards, pediatric boards, surgery boards, fail at their first attempt. It's it's been that way for a long time, still true today, 10, 15, up to 20% in some specialty areas. And so if you look around a faculty of 1,000 people, there's there's 200 that failed their boards the first time in all likelihood. And yet we don't talk about that at all because of the shame that, that, that we attribute to that. It's, it's, not, um, it's not a badge of honor. And so you had the courage to come forward to and tell that story to these students and then to write it down. Right. And so once she said to me, why aren't more people talking about this? And she and I like engaged in an email exchange. She's not even going into pediatrics, something completely different. She's passed all of her tests. So it wasn't something she even struggled with herself, but more of the, I want somebody who I can say, has struggled 
Because if everyone looks like a success story, I don't feel like a success story every day. So how do, are all these people just faking it? Uh-huh. And I was like, well, basically. Yeah. We all are yep. to some degree. And, and that's okay in some areas. Sometimes you have to show up. Like I'm taking care of a patient. I can't show, I mean, I can be vulnerable, but I can't show up and not be strong for this family and do my best. But my students and the people I'm training need to see that balance. I was featured in an article in Louisville Magazine um, because one of a girl I trained with, she was a medicine doctor, um, Mona Lisa Taylor, is their director, I believe is her role, or president. And so she said, hey, would you mind to be featured in a month on women in medicine? Um, you have the three boys who are adopted. Your husband has a big career outside of medicine. Can we? Sure. Which is, makes me a little uncomfortable. It's not yeah. really what I like. <laughs> And so, but I said, okay, maybe no, nobody will see it, right? That was not, <laughs> um, that was wrong. So after that, they asked me if I would write an article and what would I be willing to talk about? And so my husband's like, well, you need to talk about your test. And I'm like, I don't know if I'm ready to talk about the test. And he was like, well, the student. And so he pushed me. And so I wrote it. I sat down and just wrote it in one. And he helped me edit it because he works in comms. And we sent it in. And I was like, okay, it's out there. It's done. And they were like, would you join our board? Oh, wow. (sighs) And I was like, okay, well, I can never make a meeting because it's at the same time every (laughs) month as my cardiac meeting. (laughs) But if you're okay me being on your board and just submitting articles as they come, and they were like, absolutely. So writing the article itself, it makes you dig a little deep because you think, okay, you're telling somebody that you failed. And for me, this being published, like I thought that no one would see it, but they do. And I didn't think colleagues in the children's hospital would be reading it. False. They did. <laughs> they Absolutely. did. Um, and I had a lot of, and so that was unnerving to me a bit because, you know, when I run the cardiac ICU team, I'm with two CV surgeons, anesthesiologists, cardiologists, people I need and want to respect me and respect my ability to give care to their patients. And so the perception I always had was if people know this about me, they will trust my ability to provide care less and won't think I'm smart enough to contribute to the conversation. And so writing that reveals that. And I got more positive feedback on this article than any one thing I've ever done in my career as a doctor. Yeah, so one of the things you bring up in your story is about Brene Brown and and vulnerability and how she writes about vulnerability and leaders and the need to be vulnerable. Can you talk a bit about Brene Brown's influence on this process for you? Absolutely. So it's funny. um, I was introduced to Brene Brown by a friend who is in real estate, ironically, probably in 2017-ish. And I had to read the book three times before I made it stick, right? So I'd listened to Daring Greatly in the middle of the failures of the test. Um, But it took me really listening to it a third time. And and I say listening because some nonfiction books I like to listen to, I like to read fiction. Um, it's a very, it's a dichotomy. I don't, it doesn't make sense, but that's just how I, I deal with it. And so I buy the book. Yeah, absolutely. But I listen <laughs> to the book. Um, and so I started with her TED Talk. She has a TED Talk where it's just a very small piece. And then I listened to Daring Greatly. And then I listened to all of her books subsequently that came out. Um, and that... The thing that from the book that I really took away, and we actually have this now in our house on a little plaque, is she focuses on the talk from Teddy Roosevelt. Yes. Talking about being in the arena. And so basically, she was actually talking about a podcast I listened to yesterday. And she says, like, if you're not in the arena getting your ass kicked, I don't really care your opinion of me. There you go. And once I really digested that and made that like an anthem for myself, 
Like all these other people's opinion, they weren't fighting this battle with me. And most of the people whose opinion I was asking about weren't critical care doctors anyways. And the critical care doctors I worked with didn't really give a crap because they trusted me to take care of the patients with them and would fight for me if I needed to, for the worst case scenario, not pass the third time. Right. Would have helped me find a different path. I mean, and, and I think we're all of the faculty that you're interacting with that have their own experiences, maybe not the, you know, not the exact same experience, but different experiences with failure. It's this idea that we, we're hiding it and we don't know, which makes you feel like you're the only one experiencing it, when in, in reality, everyone has their own experience that they could relate to. I think you're exactly right. And one of the things that Brene Brown's talked about even more recently in some of her work is you can be vulnerable without oversharing. Yes. Some people think vulnerable is I'm going to tell you every bad thing I've done in my whole life. <laughs> yes. And that is not what she's talking about. It's no. being, and like she talks about leading this big company she leads and how can she be vulnerable without telling her colleagues like, well, me and my husband got in a fight about the, the bread and he didn't <laughs> unload the dishwasher. That's not vulnerability. But she talks about vulnerability around experience. Like these are the emotions I felt and this is how I overcame them as opposed to that. And I think there's a, misconstruing that and when we hear vulnerability we are all we all like our the hair on our back kind of stands up like sure. ooh, somebody's gonna really know me yeah. and the feeling that if somebody really knows you they won't like you or accept you and then you get in the shame cycle and my husband has told me this and and now I tell it to other people and unless he listens to this he'll never know I'm giving him credit but no patient has ever asked me my step one score it's true <laughs> <laughs> I love that yes when I'm doing That's CPR cool. or intubating a patient or saving someone's life or letting them pass with grace. No patient has ever said, how many times did you take your critical care boards? And I think students need to hear that and other faculty members. You know, when I look at my colleagues, when I look at Dr. Xanatos or I look at, you know, Charles Woods who used to be here, anybody, you name it, I don't sit and think, I wonder what Melissa Prota got on her board again. (laughs) I'm like, thank God she's reading that echo and is calling me to tell me that this patient has this problem. And I don't think we give each other... I think that's the biggest thing. We don't give each other enough credit for what we all do right. And we hold each other to a different standard. than We hold each other to a standard we don't want held of ourselves for the wrong. And I think that's in marriage and family and everything. And I think if we start to let down those walls, which I'm guilty of holding, so I'm saying all that, I'm preaching to myself. Absolutely, (laughs) Um, absolutely. If we would take the time to say, okay, I'm doing this. How do I stop doing this? And, And apologize or offer, hey, I was doing this. I recognize I was doing this. Can we start over or you give me another shot? I realize I wasn't giving you a fair. And as a faculty member, saying that to your students, and I talk about this a lot, and Brene Brown talks about this a lot as it relates to parenting. Adults don't apologize to children because that makes you feel, quote, weak or not authoritative. And I think it's true in our world of medicine. An attending doesn't really apologize to their fellow or to their student. And so as a faculty member, if you get something wrong, if you're up there teaching and you misspeak or say something wrong, don't just pretend it didn't happen. Just say, hey, maybe I screwed up. I'm sorry. Can we start over? I said something wrong. Or, hey, I taught you this yesterday and we were talking about respiratory mechanics and I think I had it flipped when I was speaking and I went and looked it up and this is what it was. I love that lesson. It takes great courage to be vulnerable like that. Because that's vulnerability. Vulnerability, like I said, isn't telling you the dirty secrets of your past. It's being vulnerable about ways you can do things better and different. If you want to up your game as a professional educator 
or to enhance your leadership skills in the academic setting, this is the place to be, as together we strive to make UofL a great place to learn, a great place to work, and a great place to invest. Join us next time for more, and come hungry.